Thank you for listening to this teaching from Table Church in Des Moines, Iowa. We are in a series called Seven Questions Jesus Asked. Jesus understood that sometimes he could say more with a simple question than with a thousand other words. His questions are known for their ability to pierce through our intentions and get to the heart of the matter. In this series, we are exploring seven questions that he asked people 2,000 years ago, but are just as relevant for us today. And as always, please be sure to check us out at tablechurchdsm.org. Thank you for listening. Well, once again, welcome everybody. It's great to have you here at Table Church. Would you, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 17. I'm just going to walk over here and get my music stand quick. I'll be right back. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17 is what we're looking at today. As you get there, um, oh, if you don't have a Bible but you'd like one, just raise your hand and an usher will bring you one. If you don't own a Bible and you'd like one, feel free to keep the one we hand you. It's yours. Um, As you get there, I want to remind you of what Megan mentioned earlier. Today we are going to have a church picnic. I hope you can come. Um, Greenwood Park, uh, bring your own lunch, grab a chair. If you have a yard game you want to bring, bring that as well. It's going to be a good time. Um, But yeah, we're also going to be celebrating the fact that we're about to turn four years old as a church, which is pretty crazy. I can't believe that it's already been four years. I don't know at what point you start, you, you don't get to call yourself a baby church anymore. Are we there? I'm not sure. In, in church years, how old is this? I have no idea. But it uh, still feels like we're babies, doesn't it? A little bit? I mean, we're doing all right, but it just feels like only yesterday that we started. It's been an incredible journey and the, the greatest honor of my life to, to lead this church. And uh, I can only thank you for the, for the ability to do that because you are the church. And so thank you so much for being a part of what we're doing here at Table Church. Here we are in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. It says this, Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. I want to begin by asking you a rhetorical question. I don't need a show of hands for this question, but I just want you to answer it in your own heart. How many of you have been deeply hurt by a pastor or a church leader at one point or another? How many of you have ever been deeply hurt by a pastor or a church leader at one point or another? Now, Again, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I would like you to know that if I were to ask for a show of hands, there would be a lot of hands in the air. In fact, if I had to guess, I would say that over half of the hands in this room would probably be up. Now, when I say hurt by a pastor or a church leader, what I don't mean is like they just, they didn't respond to your email or they didn't let you start the program you really wanted to start, or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about here. I mean that you trusted this person, 
You thought they lived a life that was worthy of emulation. You devoted yourself to their leadership. You gave time and you gave money and, you, and your family oriented itself around what was going on. And then you found out that they weren't the kind of person you thought they were. That they were one kind of person on stage and another kind of person backstage. Or maybe you did know what kind of person they were. It's just that you thought that's how it was supposed to go. And now you got a little distance and you're starting to realize, okay, that was actually pretty toxic there. That can be some really, really nasty pain. It's the kind of pain that's, I mean, it's not only sent people searching for another church, it's sent people out of the church, out of the faith even. There's a reason why books and podcasts and articles and documentaries that expose the hypocrisy of church leaders spread like crazy. And I mean, part of it's, of course, because everyone loves a juicy story, right? But part of it's because it's hitting on a very real experience for many people. You, you listen or you watch this thing and you're like, oh my goodness, this is, this is what I felt. I've seen this movie before. I can't believe there's other people that have gone through this too. Maybe I'm not crazy. Maybe I'm not alone. Like all those sorts of feelings come flooding back when you see it again. Now, my point is that spiritual abuse is very painful. And it can do long-lasting harm to people, and it can take years to heal from. But what I want you to know is that it was happening 2,000 years ago, and Jesus had some words for those people. We're in a series right now called Seven Questions Jesus Asked, and today's question is in the passage we just read. It's the question, whose image is this? Now, you might wonder, what in the world does that question have to do with, like, I don't know, hypocrisy in church leaders? And, and what we're going to find is, is that it's actually Jesus, this was his way of exposing the, the doubled nature, the hypocrisy within the religious leaders that were testing him. The Greek word is for hypocrisy or hypocrite is the same as the word for actor, that's really what the word was. And my understanding is that really Jesus kind of popularized using that word in this sense, referring to what we now call a hypocrite. In the ancient world, actors would often wear masks. And so it's almost as though when we talk about a hypocrite, we're talking about an actor with a mask on, someone who's pretending to be somebody that they're not, concealing who they really are. In Matthew 23, Jesus, he goes off against the Pharisees and he has what we call the seven woes. The seven woes. He says things like, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You pray long, fancy prayers, but you devour widows' homes. You tie the tenth of your spices, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, like mercy and justice. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You paint yourself up all nice on the outside, but inside you're like a rotting corpse. Like, he's just... I mean, like severe burning these guys, you know? And the Greek dictionary defines the word for woe like this. It says, a state of intense hardship or distress, disaster or horror. That's intense. That's what Jesus says coming to these hypocrites. Because taking advantage of people's hunger for God that's not cool. Using God as your leverage to control people. Jesus got some words for you. 
So he says, woe to you. Now in our passage that we are looking at today, it starts out like this in verse 13. It says, later they, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. So they're trying to trap Jesus. Now what's interesting here, we don't have time to dig into the differences between the Pharisees and the Herodians. Um, two different sects, part of the like religious elite, two very different groups, but united in their hatred of Jesus apparently. And we have to go back one verse if we want to see who sent these guys. It says they were there. They sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians. So who? It says in verse 12, then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So we have kind of a team up here between pretty much everybody, like the religious establishments coming together in solidarity in their desire to take Jesus down. All right. Uh, now, why, why did they not like him so much? Well, it's because he's calling them out on their hypocrisy, at least in part. And so the crowds are following Jesus, and they're looking at this, and people in power don't like to be undermined, and so they're plotting against him. Verse 14, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? They're really buttering him up here, aren't they? Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. And all, like, all these things are going on as though they have pure motives. Like, oh, we're just coming to you because, you know, we heard you're a really, really good teacher. And we just have this honest question that we really want to ask you. Should we pay taxes or not? You know, like, so they're clearly putting on a mask here. Now, here's the trap that they're trying to set. When they ask Jesus, should we pay the imperial tax? Here's why this is a tricky position for Jesus. Because on the one hand, most of Jesus' Jewish kinfolk, countrymen, uh, they fiercely resented paying taxes to Caesar. I mean, they felt like they were still, they were were being oppressed by Rome. They're in bondage, if you will. And in fact, they're hoping Jesus is going to come and help help them become free again. He's going to stick it to the Roman oppressor. And so for Jesus to say, yeah, you should pay taxes to Caesar, well, that's going to alienate him from a good portion of his followers. They don't want to hear that. But there's another problem with paying taxes to Caesar, just as important, maybe even more. The coins with which they would have paid those taxes, they usually had an image on them, an image of Caesar. And on the coin, there was usually wording that would allude to Caesar's... And so if you're going to pay taxes, that means that you're having to enter into that sphere a little bit. You're going to have to hand, you know, have those coins and stuff like that. So that's the problem with saying, yes, pay taxes to Caesar. On the other hand, if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes, well, then there's strong reason for Rome to come and arrest Jesus. In fact, two decades earlier, there had been a massive uprising against paying taxes in that area. And so Rome knew how dangerous uh, a rebel leader like Jesus could potentially be. 
Now, that's probably what they were hoping Jesus would say. They were probably hoping he would say, no, don't pay taxes. He's going to pull out his don't tread on me flags. You ain't going to pay no taxes. You know, like, that's what they were expecting him to do. That's not obviously what he did. Because if he does, well, Jesus gets arrested. Problem solved. That's not what happens. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So Jesus knows these guys are wearing a mask. He knows that they're being hypocrites here. They're flattering Jesus with all this talk of integrity and truth. But, but Jesus knows that they don't actually live this themselves. And so he asks them for a denarius. A denarius is a kind of coin. In fact, it's the very kind of coin that you would have paid taxes with. Now, there's an, a New Testament scholar named Craig Evans, and uh, he points out something kind of interesting in this text that I want you to pay attention to because it, it kind of matters here. Um, they actually do have a denarius on them, which is, which is a little surprising, actually. And that denarius does have a picture of Caesar on it, apparently, because after all, Jesus is about to ask whose image it is, right? So here's what Craig Evans says. He says, Jewish Palestine circulated copper coins that omitted the image of the deified emperor, which was offensive to Jewish tastes. So we already talked about that, right? Um, they didn't like the pictures of Caesar on there. And so they actually had coins that didn't have a picture of Caesar in that particular region just so that they could have currency in that area because the Jewish people wouldn't have accepted one that had a picture of Caesar. But Jesus' opponents have a silver denarius, which bore the emperor's image available when he requests one. They are therefore hardly in a position to challenge him, Craig Evans says. In other words, like these guys who just blathered on about integrity and truth, they're carrying around with them a, a denarius. They got a picture of Caesar on their coin. What are they doing with that? See, these guys themselves are somehow in possession of this thing that wasn't even circulated in the region. Like, what, what are you doing? You can almost hear a murmur from the crowd, you know, starting to go, wait a second, why is... Why has he got a picture of, why has he got one of them coins, you know? What's he doing with one of those? You can almost hear the crowd going, wait, what? So, so let's just make sure we're clear. They try to trap Jesus. Jesus turns the tables. He traps them. He exposed their own hypocrisy. If the Pharisees are trying to promote themselves as beacons of righteousness, then what are they doing with one of Caesar's coins? Jesus just turned the tables on them. Whose image you got there, he says. Caesar's. Enough said. Now, what Jesus says next is a little mysterious. But it's the line that we actually hear the most from this passage. When Je then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, like I said, this is kind of an ambiguous phrase, isn't it? What exactly is Jesus saying here? And there's, I've now read different opinions about what Jesus may have meant by that. For some, it's Jesus saying, yeah, just pay the taxes. Like, who cares? Who cares whose coin that is? Give Caesar's coin back, you know? And maybe that's what he meant. Others would say, well, no. You know, in the Jewish mind, all in the world belongs to God. And so for Jesus to say, give back to Caesar what's Caesar's, well, Caesar doesn't have anything because it's all God's, which means that's basically saying, give Caesar nothing. 
And so two opposite ways of interpreting what Jesus said. It's ambiguous enough, apparently, uh, that we're not entirely sure what he meant. But maybe that's what he meant. Maybe he was trying to be vague. I'm not sure. Maybe he was leaving it open enough for us to investigate our own hearts. Maybe the point of the whole thing is really exposing the hypocrisy in the hearts of the religious leaders and getting us to ask ourselves, maybe I do that too. These guys are questioning Jesus, but their hearts weren't pure. They didn't really want answers. They didn't care about that. They were just trying to look good and take down Jesus. And I wonder if sometimes we do something a little bit similar. Most of us, if we were honest, we make a habit of trying to appear different than we are. See, sometimes I wonder if the reason why there are Discovery Channel documentaries and viral podcasts exposing the hypocrisy of church leaders is because sometimes it feels good to know that there's someone out there worse than me. It helps us when we can think, well, I might do this, but at least I've never done that. And so we sometimes play a comparison game. I might not actually be living the way I know I ought to, but I mean, I'm not as bad as that guy. And so we comfort ourselves. But do you know what it's called when you minimize your hypocrisy compared to someone else's hypocrisy? It's called hypocrisy. Look, we must be more rigorous about inspecting our own hearts than we are about inspecting someone else's. And I I think that throughout the Bible, God's like, look, there's one person you're really responsible for, and that's you. I've told this story before, but it's um, too perfect not to share again. When I was first a pastor, I was on staff at a church in Sioux Falls and um, wanting to make a good impression. And my office was right by the door that people came in often. And my office door had a window on it. And so anybody who comes in the church could look in and see, hey, what's the new pastor Phil up to in there? And so a lot of times I'd look in my, in my window, give me a wave or whatever. And I remember one time I'm sitting there working on my computer and I hear the door open. And so I know somebody's about to walk by my window. And I had my Bible open next to me. And I wasn't using my Bible at the moment, but I instinctually turned like this and pretended to read the Bible. (laughs) Because I wanted them to see me reading the Bible if they looked in. And I don't know why that little thing, I mean, it doesn't seem little to me, but boy, God just really whacked me over the head after that. There were those moments where God's just like, hey, you know I saw that, right? (laughs) That's what it was like for me. I was like, oh, what a fool I am. What, 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 what is going on in here that would compel such a silly action? What kind of insecurity? What kind of desire to look something else than I am? What, what's going on here that would compel me to do that? What's your story like that? What's yours? See, my worry is that we live in a, in a, in a climate that actually makes it all too easy to be hypocritical where we don't really care that much anymore how we appear before God. And I don't want to negate anything about the fact that God's grace absolutely covers all of our sin. But there's more to the story than that. C.S. Lewis has a famous collection of essays called God in the Dock. Now, dock is British terminology for like the witness stand in a court, all right? We're not going boating with C.S. Lewis and God, okay? It's Doc is like the witness stand in, in an American courtroom, right? 
He's saying that we have put God on the stand for questioning and we put ourselves in the judge's seat. Here's what he says. The ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. That's how the ancient person thought of things. God is the judge. I'm in the dock, right? For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease. He is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. This is quite a different worldview. This is quite a a shift from, from the ancient person's mind. We are now the ones asking the questions to God, and God is the one who's expected to give answers. Now, I want to be really clear. I think asking questions is a good thing. I want this to be a church where we can bring our questions about God and about faith. I encourage you to do so. But there also needs to come a time where God gets to ask me some questions where God gets to ask us if our lives are in alignment. And so let me ask the question, if God were to ask you some questions today, what would he ask? If you were to produce the the treasure that's in your heart, whose image would be on that coin? What's the thing that makes you irrationally angry? This is like, Pastor Megan and I, this is like our litmus test to see what's kind of got your heart. What's that thing that makes you irrationally angry? Is it when the pastor talks about money? Maybe that's what's got you. Is it um, what, you know, when some, something starts to touch on what you watch, what you look at? Is it how you treat your kids, your spouse? Honestly, if God were to ask me some questions today, They might have to do with like this. Phil, are you coming into worship ready to meet with me? Ready to create a hospitable environment for others to meet with me? Or are you trying to look good? Are you trying to impress people? That might be what God would ask me. What would he ask you? So just for a minute, let's let's put God on the judge's seat of our lives. I know. The language of judgment. It's not very popular, is it? But you know, sometimes it's misused. What I'm saying is that let's let God examine us and point out the misalignments that he finds. Places where we say, we believe this, but we sure don't act that way. Let's ask God to point those out because even though it might hurt, it's good. Let's let God say, Woe to you because you do this. Not because God is vindictive, but because God wants to bring healing. So what question does God need to ask you? Would you let him ask it today? And as scary as it might sound, let's pray, God, judge me. And what I mean is not God unleash your wrath and your punishment and your anger on me, hurt me. That's not what it is. It's God, heal me, even if it hurts a little. 
when God says woe to you, it's not to condemn you, it's to warn you. This is not the way to life. Come and follow me, Jesus says. So if you were to produce the treasure of your heart, whose image would be on it? Let's pray. Lord God, I want to take a moment and just let you ask us whatever question might need to be asked. Lord, I want to ask your forgiveness for the times where we come to test you, where we come and put you on the dock. And I'm not, I'm not saying, Lord, that we shouldn't ask you questions, and I don't think that's what you think. I, I think there's all sorts of places in the Bible where that's the case, where people ask you questions, and, and you're a good God. But Lord, sometimes we let those questions become excuses. Sometimes we let questions become the kind of thing where we're not actually looking for, for answers. We're looking for some sort of an emotional, therapeutic opportunity to express what we're really feeling inside. And so, Lord, I pray that you forgive us for that. And, you, and we just come to you as your children saying, God, help. And so would you, God, would you ask us the questions we need to be asked and give us the courage to face them when you do. Help us not to be hypocrites today, but help our hearts to be fully surrendered and open before you, we pray. We love you, God, in your name. Amen.